Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. And I, you know, actually when I get introduced, I don't like anyone to say my bio. I prefer the introduction of how do you know this person? So I will introduce you that way. I know you because we were on a panel together and you said some things and gave at least like the skeleton of a story that landed on me as a significant story, maybe even a medicine story, something that I'm like, wow, I really want people to be touched by this story because it's more than just what it's about. Yeah. And I felt a kinship with you and I'm like, yeah, let's, let's record a conversation. Do you want to add anything to your introduction? <laughs> I, I feel grateful for the opportunity to be um, in conversation with you. I'll just say I'm an urban farmer and I'm an herbalist, and I've spent uh, almost 20 years as an executive director of, of different environmental justice nonprofits. And mostly right now, making the shift away from that, I run my own business now called From Soil to Soul. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, great, yeah, thank you. Um, before I started recording, we were talking about endless treadmill of uh, chemical inputs into agriculture, each solving the problem that the previous one caused. That's called the technical fix, like a drug addiction. You know, you fix one, cause another one, have another drink, feel better for a while, have another drink. And this was in the context of the same paradigm of being, being applied in medicine and really in every aspect of our culture. I mean, in one way, violence is an example of that. Like you, you use violence to solve a problem and it temporarily works. You bomb them to smithereens and they're gone. You lock them up in prison and they can't hurt you anymore. Yet somehow the final solution is elusive no matter how many people you kill. I'm hoping maybe in this conversation we can tie some of these seemingly disconnected but actually deeply connected phenomena together. I think that so much of this is about a massive shift in the patterns in our culture right now, this endless growth economy that just has us spinning ourselves dizzy with kind of incessant, relentless doing. And for the past year plus, we've had a moment to just be in stillness and reflect on what's working and what's not. And to my mind, the idea of kind of blindly replicating 
the patterns of our economy with the ways in which we're working for social change is a recipe for depleting um, our most precious resources, which are the people that are driving movements for change in our world today. And mm -hmm. so on one hand, there's just immense amounts of hope for what can happen once we begin to re-enter the new world. And on the other hand, if we haven't really learned how to internalize even the most basic message of how we operate in the world, then I think we're just setting ourselves up for the continued grind that will lead us back into the same place where we are right now, being completely disempowered and entirely reliant upon outside forces telling us what to do and how to do it in order to get through this time so we can get back to normal. That just seems like a, something that is highly problematic. Yeah, yeah, I think that 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 kind of normal is gonna be like a mirage on the horizon. You know, like you can, no matter how, how, how much progress you make toward the horizon, it's never actually any closer. It's always just over the horizon. So one area of activism that you're, you've been involved in is food localization, which basically it's a establishing of our own sovereignty and reclaiming some of life instead of waiting for it to be given back to us. Uh, not that most Americans are food insecure yet <laughs> or now, but it's still like just on a really visceral level. It makes us feel much, much less dependent on impersonal institutions and markets, yeah? Yeah, I fully agree. What brought you into it? How did you get involved in that movement? It's interesting that I got into the food sovereignty organizing through land rights. And I got into land rights by having absolutely no connection at all to land. Right? So it, it, it was not something that was, that was really palpable for me until... I went to school and realized in those, um, in those days there were the frontline organizing was taking over buildings in order to call for diversifying the curriculum in all of our history classes and literature classes. And I was involved with those movements because of my friend's circle. And I came to understand that I know very little about my own history and my heritage, my roots. And so I went to Israel and spent um, almost 15 years working with Israelis um, and Palestinians, like at that nexus of where land is something that is what people are fighting uh, wars over for endless um, amounts of, of time right now. So for me, it was like that, that made everything become real when I saw that the war was over land and resources not over the differences of opinions that are um, at their core religious, um, but really about the ways in which land is being managed and the ways in which resources are being distributed. Hmm. Um, and so like a deep dive into studying that, I did my master's on, um, on trees and how trees are planted in some areas in order to displace Palestinians 
um, and then trees are burned down in other areas in order to convey a very clear message to Israelis that these forests cannot replace our villages. And there's this war, Never, over 800,000 olive trees have been uprooted um, in, in this land conflict and over 2 million new trees, 250 million pine trees and acacia trees have been planted in this conflict in order to control resources. And so I was studying this and, and I was completely blown away by how it works that people who have control over land um, have all the power and people who are denied access to land, you can see this today in any conflict in any city across the country, people who are unhoused are, and displaced have no access to power and no access to kind of those basic resources that we all need to live um, a safe life and to have basic sovereignty. So I got into it from that angle of, of like agitating, organizing around land rights and mm -hmm. only later found myself pulled in by the food sovereignty movement once I had moved back to the United States mm -hmm. and Los Angeles. Wow. Okay, so, so you went to Israel slash Palestine as a student, as a scholar, and you ended up becoming an activist. Like, how did that happen? Was there like some precipitating incident that called you into that work? Um, can, tell, tell me about how that happened. Yeah, I, um, I, I was at the time living on a kibbutz and I was really compelled by this vision of um, people from the diaspora, people from different nations around the world that have been in exile coming back together to work the land and grow this kind of collective sense of responsibility. I was, I was kind of really enamored by that vision. And, um, and, and so I was uh, a volunteer on a program living on a kibbutz up north in Israel. And a couple of us um, took a break for one of the harvest holidays and we went down south to um, a place that's very dear to my heart. We went to um, Sinai. We went to visit the, the, the Sinai, um, which is a part of Egypt um, that is where the, the, the majority of the people who live there are Bedouin. Mm -hmm. And on the way down to the Sinai, um, we went through Israel's desert. It was my first experience of seeing um, any part other than the, the kind of more the forested landscape that I was living in up north in, in this kibbutz, Ramat Yochanan. And so we were on our way down south and I saw when I looked out the window of this uh, Eged the bus, um, I saw shanties um, on either side. It's just um, it, like corrugated tin shacks and uh, it's called the, the, the spreading in Hebrew. Like the, there are these little encampments that are not connected to any formal infrastructure mm -hmm. at all. And I remember asking a person on the bus what that was. And it just happened to be that the person on the bus gave me the answer that really changed my life. He said, um, the, those villages are unrecognized. And <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking about that. H how is an entire village 
unrecognized. And so on our way back up from our visit to the Sinai, um, I, I got off the bus and found my way to Beersheba and started asking some more questions about these unrecognized villages. And there's an office of um, Bedouin organizers that um, people pointed me to. Um, and I went in and introduced myself as someone who's interested in some allyship and some kind of deep accomplice work uh, with the community. And I learned that there are you know, over 160,000 Bedouin citizens of the state of Israel that don't have any access to drinking water, electricity, very paltry uh, resources are available inside the, the communities. There are hardly any roads and obviously like really limited healthcare and educational facilities. Um, so it blew my mind open and the organization that I founded, Bustan, which means an orchard or kind of a, a polyculture orchard, was um, a Jewish and, and Bedouin partnership to try to recognize these unrecognized villages and do whatever we possibly could to be proactive in our response to the health needs of this community. I see. And was this, um, you know, the uh, atmosphere in Israel, at least I'm an, I'm an outsider, I don't know, but, but it seems to me to be that issues like this could become very politicized. <laughs> did, did, did that happen or did you manage to evade some of the uh, rabid political controversies around, you know, Arabs and Jews and, and Israel and Palestine and all that? Like, how, how, how did that play out? <laughs> it's, it, I don't think it's possible to ever really evade that whole um, matrix when you open your mouth to talk about this conflict. Um, you are automatically <laughs> siding one way or the other. And um, I wasn't really interested in having just kind of a, a neutral impact of like, mm -hmm. can't we all just get along, all lives matter kind of approach. I, 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 was, I became hyper aware of the difference between the peace movement and the justice movement. And the peace movement at the time was very much about coexistence and learning from each other and having dialogue and making change just by virtue of being together. Um, and the justice movements that, that I was more pull, pulled in by were actually pointing to the root causes of the oppressive systems that create such a deep cleavage between those who have access to resources and those who don't. So the right. deep structural divides, like we, so, so I was very pulled in by organizing in such a way that we could expose just how deep these chasms are between the Israelis and the Palestinians, um, the Jews and the Arabs, but to do so in a way that would be impactful or, or positive or proactive rather than just anti, and, you know, fi mm -hmm. filling, filling more people's hearts and minds with agitation and, and, and that ang angst that comes with um, the fight for change. Mm -hmm. So I was very much more interested in a proactive organizing. And so in turn, we, we, we built a school, we built a medical clinic, 
Um, when I left, they continued and, and built a mosque using all traditional materials, um, mud and straw and helping by creating rather than just charging against what was already destroying the nature of the relationships between Jews and Arabs. Mm-hmm. My mind is kind of going on this thing about peace uh, and justice and and one way to illustrate what you're saying is, is like, imagine you are uh, in a society where half the people have taken everything the other half needs to live and are, and have done so by violence and then are saying, okay, now let's be nice to each other and have <laughs> peace and not fight. But, it, but, another, but that's, that's kind of almost enabling the status quo and erasing how things got like that to begin with. On the other hand, you absolutely. Could, yeah, but on the other hand, like you could also say that injustice is only maintained by violence. Therefore, the peace movement ultimately is going to lead to justice if you follow it to its to its conclusion. And and so I, I do see a, a potential unification of these two branches of really I think what's coming from the same impulse. That makes a lot of sense to me. I definitely can imagine places where people might disagree with that premise. Imagine if you you don't have drinking water and you have bulldozers and army vehicles um, completely surrounding your encampment, your your village, and destroying de- demolishing your home. Yes. You know, it's we see it now in the streets where 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 people don't feel safe by those very forces that are in place designed to create safety. So it's difficult to to imagine how folks can can say that I'd, I'd, I'd like to just feel more peaceful. It sound, it, to me, it seems almost like a very privileged position to take um, that yeah. I, I'd like to experience more peace. Then you I, would say, you'd say to experience more peace, you've got to take away the bulldozers, you know, and I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's, not, that's not peaceful. And I guess I don't know the, you know, the politics of Israel well enough to say, wow. I mean, I, it's kind of, shocking that somebody could say that they are pro-peace and still support bulldozing homes and tearing up olive groves and denying people water. I mean, that seems like violence to me, not peace. Yes, I definitely agree. And look, this conflict is um, is not something that I even speak about anymore um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a, an activist or an organizer. I just got completely... Um, I got completely burnt out by the, 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 the binary, like back and back and forth, like Mm -hmm. I'm right. So that means you're wrong. Like there is so much fire in this conflict and it's tearing up not only like community, but it's tearing families, making people lose jobs to talk about this for decades now, you know, um, it's, um, this, this stuff is really tricky it affects people's careers long-term when they speak about this stuff. So it's really, it, it, it is what led me personally to burnout, to an mm-hmm. absolute place of exhaustion. Cause I went over there as this kind of wide eyed 
um, sort of dreamy post-college um, activists, like a believer that with enough will, we can change anything. Mm-hmm. And I put so much love and so much energy into trying to create something beautiful, like some, some idea that I know so many of um, our religions are deeply rooted in, which is that all of us are, um, each one of us is sacred and each one of us deserves to have dignity and the respect of the people around us as well as our governments. And I came to understand that it doesn't ultimately matter how much you put into the world to create more just uh, structures, like a, a medical clinic that anybody can access medicines when they need those medicines, particularly when they're overexposed agro and petrochemicals and, and, and toxic waste incineration that's been cited in their unrecognized village, village number 32, to be precise. Um, what, what happened to me was I realized there is no way I can make a dent. And, and it's, just, it's just, I'm exhausted from trying. Yeah, that's, that's, I think, that's the topic that I've been especially interested to talk to you about, uh, because burnout, uh, you know, because your trajectory is uh, shared by so many other people who go out there full of zeal, full of energy, going to tackle this problem, and, and maybe at the height of that, even condemning those who are not equally zealous, and who have abandon the cause and are off doing, you know, art or music or, you know, something else, healing. They've become a a massage therapist. They've become a gardener. They've become an herbalist, you know, and like, what about the cause? You know, whatever activism uh, there, I mean, this is a common trajectory. And and so I'm really interested to hear you, to hear you say more about that. Like, how did you grapple with those issues? Yeah, tell me a bit more about your trajectory and how it brought you where you are and what feelings inhabited you as you went through this process. I felt really beaten down. I felt um, irrelevant, like there's nothing that I can say or do that can make an impact. It just doesn't work. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it took me on a, a really wild ride. It was a very painful journey that, um, that ha- has me reflecting a lot on movements for social change and how a lot of the, the basic expectation is that you give of that very finite resource you you give your energy um it's not the nine to five it's everything that goes after your nine to five or in addition to your nine to five if you're in the movement as a professional and it is very much be about like needing to continuously evidence your commitment and take it one step further because there's an urgency to affect change. You can't just go back inside 
and take another selfie without realizing that your liberation is inextricably linked to that of the, of, of the people living in the house across the street from you and in the neighborhood right down the road from you. And so even if you're comfortable enough to like go nano on your own self-care or your own you know, spiritual journey, um, and that takes you deep into other things which are far away from the movement, if it ever takes you so far that you're completely disconnected from the needs of the, of the people around you, then you're at one end of a, of a continuum that can only be remedied by putting energy towards growing community resilience. But if you're at the other end and you've given everything you've got to help try to move these movements and you find yourself um, needing a recharge, just depleted, mm-hmm. then the, sometimes the only thing that can help is the, the, the nature of going back into the nano of just getting really still. And if that means, you know, sitting under a tree and noticing the, the difference between the color of the leaf on the, on the outside and the color of the leaf on its underbelly, um, that, that stillness of focus that is, you know, deep natural reflection, that is self-care, that is soul care, can sometimes be the only remedy you know, for burnout. So this continuum kind of between the nano focus on self and then the macro meta focus on the needs of the shifting structures in our world, it's a very interesting dance Hmm. because both hold something that can help the other move towards a more grounded and centered place. So are you saying that that maybe during those years, if you had taken some moments to to smell the flowers, to do yeah. self-care, then maybe you wouldn't have burned out if you hadn't pushed it so hard? Is that what you're saying? That's a very, yes, absolutely um, understated. If we continue to, to fight for change um, without recognizing how to regenerate then there's right. this whole, this just, we're not effective at, at doing anything. We need to be at, on top of our game going out of a, a year of COVID and back into creating a new world. We have to be able to regenerate and recharge ourselves so we can keep actively involved with the, the, the processes of change, which we need them to be effective for the long haul. Yeah. And I'm noticing here a parallel between the kind of self-oppression that you're describing, the self-deprivation, and what the Israeli state is doing to the Palestinians and what oppressors around the world do to the, to the oppressed. It's like kind of a, an internalized form of sub-oppression, as Paolo Freire would have called it, that on some level strengthens the template of oppression generally. It's, it's like contributing to the same energy. I would really yeah. love to share a little bit about what I've gleaned in the process of becoming connected to the regenerative teachings of working the land. Yeah, I'm, I, I would love to hear about the 
whatever principles and teachings that you've derived from your experience. And now you can, having digested all of that, you can offer them to the world, to me, maybe. I'm not sure if I would say I'm burned out, but often feeling a lot of fatigue. And sometimes it veers into, you know, despondency and futility. And I guess maybe that is burnout. That is burnout. Well, you might not be there yet, but these are the signs. So everything just begins up here with being able to follow. And the process is inserting this piece into our worldview and into the way that we cycle through days, weeks, months, um, years, seasons, the way that we as individuals do and the way that you do when you're part of a team or a movement or a department. Um, we don't have this right now. This is this piece is like stop everything and just be still. Not so that you can be more impactful down the road, but be still right now so you can breathe. Right. It's not to mortgage that or legitimize it in terms of, well, it's going to make me more productive later, but to value it in its own right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. For those who are listening to this, by the way, I'm just going to say that we're looking at a, a, a wheel here and it has four quadrants and one is fallow and then sow, tend, and then harvest. And then it goes back to fallow. So, um, yeah. And it's a, so it's just a cycle, um, which allows us the chance to reflect and just pause long enough to be able to release any grief that has accumulated and not yet had a chance to um, be mourned. Um, fallow is a chance to just be still, to regenerate from within. We're very skilled at depleting the resources that we give out into the world when we begin sowing our seeds and tending to our creations and then harvesting all the goodness to share in the world. So regenerative um, agriculture would have us understand how vital it is to restore the vitality of the soil, to put more nutrients back into your ecosystem. You need a time to just pause. Yeah. On a mental level, I totally agree with that. But I have very deep habits that get in the way of actually doing it. Like I don't even realize that I'm um, denying myself that phase until like weeks or months later. And so it, what I've noticed is that it operates unconsciously and results in these like mini unintentional fallow times that look a lot like procrastination right. that are not actually even restful, but they're, they're like my soul's rebellion against doing anything. Mm. And so then I turn to whatever I'm allowing myself to do to not do things like, you know, watching chess videos or something like that. And, and so, yeah, like, and then there's all the psychological garbage of if I just rest and do nothing, you know, how can I justify that given all of the oppressed who don't have the luxury of resting? And, and then for, for me, to some extent, but for a lot of people, there's an economic dimension too. You know, our society doesn't actually support that phase. You're not, you know, most people don't continue getting their salary if they stop working. And for me, like I get a lot of support just passively, like people donate monthly or whatever. But, you know, if I stop producing stuff, it starts to trail off, you know, and 
so there's that anxiety too. But I, but I think the economic for me is not as strong as the the psychological, like the parental judgments about being lazy and and the you know guilt for the state of the oppressed. And even though, like as that quote demonstrates, those who the modern mind sees as the most marginalized and poverty stricken are actually generally a lot better at this following than those who are deeply immersed in modern society, which is ruled by the clock. And you're deemed uh, irrelevant unless you're continuously producing and achieving. And that sabbatical is about banging out the book and getting more stuff out into the world and all the time, like extracting your energy for the purpose of putting it into the world. And we have really resisted the the kind of natural cycle of growth and decay. Mm-hmm. Um, the seasonal regenerative current that is winter, the need for our bodies to have a deep restorative sleep to replenish our resources so that the next day we can remember to be present in the world and not just um, to glean our sense of worth from what we are doing. So the emphasis is once again on, on figuring out how to add more fertility into um, the system that has been depleted. It's yeah. tough. I mean, also, you know, intersectional justice movements and all the uh, entrepreneurial in, in incubators um, or like family members that are taking care of someone who's sick from COVID. It's next to impossible to imagine like people that have the resources to just pause and reflect. But I think of this stage of fallow as um, a way of recognizing how valuable it is to infuse probiotics back into your system, like how to kind of add compost into your garden and then let it rest. Like the, this amazing garden teacher always said to me, let the plants do what the plants know how to do. We have to work on building soil fertility. And without doing that, all we're just replicating systems of extraction and demanding our gardens to be able to produce all the time. Yeah. So there's part of me, you know, here's been a bit of my subconscious process over many years now, because I started having fatigue issues like seven or eight years ago. Like, I mean, I am so aware of like so many people out there working two jobs, three jobs, scrambling for childcare, you know, like in pretty desperate situations, like millions, you know, like billions of people are in that situation. So I'm like, like I have no right to go into that rest mode until everybody in earth can, has that opportunity as well. Like I cannot justify it. This is not a conscious thought. Okay. Consciously I can rebut that thought, but unconsciously it just works on me. And it's almost like I only am good or can Uh, approve and love myself if I am pushing myself to the limit. And I just like, um, and then like, sometimes I'm like, I realize what I'm doing and I'm like, okay, I got to stop doing that. I've got to rest. How can I justify it? Well, if I rest, then I'm going to be doing better work in the future. So it's okay to rest a little bit as much as is justifiable, which usually ends up not being very much. 
And so I like, I pull back from the brink a little bit and then using that little extra energy I've gotten from a little fallow period, I push it to the limit again and again and again. And this happens again and again. And, you know, now I'm like down to like 149 pounds and, and like exhausted all the time. And like, and I guess like, this is, you know, kind of a personal thing for a podcast, but you know, I'm sure a lot of people know what I'm talking about. And it's not a matter of somebody correcting my um, misunderstanding about self-worth and, and human life and stuff. Like, I get that. But it's, it, even if I get it, it's still, it still keeps happening. And I don't know what to do. It's really, really um, a powerful story. Thank you uh, so much for sharing that. Um, there's a lot of burnout research. Um, there's a, there's a kind of the, the, the mother of burnout research, Christina Malash. She's um, a UC Berkeley person who identified different variables that cause burnout and factors um, that you mentioned just now, like the uh, internal pressures that we apply to ourselves that are in there. They're like in our DNA. Um, that's only one aspect of it. There's also the the, the, the external pressures from finances that you were sharing, the need, we have to keep working in order to pay the bills. But then there's this burnout that comes also from the internal dynamics of the way p- people treat each other at work when there's that scarcity mentality. And um, I wanted to share with you that there was research that came out just a few weeks ago, Flex Jobs and Mental Health America, mental health, MHA, reported that COVID had had exacerbated a 75% job burnout rate. And it's just incredible to think of that statistic. I mean, that, that, there's like, it is everywhere. It's so rampant. Um, these pressures that we're facing are chronic. Um, it's overwhelming. And it really snuffs our ability to be able to rebuild support structures. And at exactly at the time when we need those support structures more now than ever before. Mm-hmm. I also read recently that 84% of millennials say that they've experienced burnout in their current job. So it's not just happening to people who have been in it for a really long time. Um, and, and so for me, it, it, it's, it's on us to reflect on what we can tweak, how we can do it differently. It's all right. Real life is intruding here on our conversation, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, I I guess like uh, underneath it all, it seems to me like we need to learn how to rewire so that we can apply our energy sources um, without tapping and depleting them. Like, so we can realize that energy is finite. We have to halt the extraction of energy. Truly, like from my perspective, the next frontier may well be halting the extraction of this kind of finite energy. We have to learn how yeah. to do that. I wrote a whole essay about this, like, gosh, years ago, like five or six years ago about adrenal fatigue. And I was drawing a parallel like unsustainably drawing down our resources, like on the planet. I'm like, we wouldn't do that to ourselves, would we? Oh, actually it's a perfect mirror. It's a perfect mirror. Cause what we do to the land 
is what we do to the people. And what we do to the people is what we do to the land. And like, if we can find ways to do the opposite, replenish the land's resources while we're also replenishing our own, then we've figured out how to crack this nut. Like how to learn the lesson from extraction, like how destructive the extractive economy is, the mentality of grinding your way to, to get through the day, like what that does to mm-hmm. one's health over time, you know, and how it creates a sense of depletion and scarcity. And we just need to learn what tools are out there to be able to see energy, not as a commodity that can be swapped for a paycheck, but as a force that's sacred. Mm-hmm. It's a choice that we, we choose when to give that out and when to plug in to movements or to work um, to our walls, to charge our devices. But we also choose when to unplug and how to do that without all the noise of guilt that comes with it. Oh, hold on a second. Now, real life is intruding here, too. I'm recording a uh, podcast. <laughs> yeah. So we'll definitely leave that in there. <laughs> Great. It's real. Yeah. Don't have to airbrush anything here, right? <laughs> if we could only learn how to, um, how to better value our time, better our energy, like how to, how to measure its worth, how to, how to manage it as though it is finite. Mm-hmm. I, I've gotten good teachings on that from uh, observing animals who like are usually not busy. Even bees, like bees are the epitome of busyness, you know, busy as a bee. But if you actually look at a hive of bees, like I, like I like to look at wild bees, you know, who, who you know, carpenter bees and stuff. And most of the time, they're just kind of hanging out, like not actually doing anything productive. Same thing with seagulls. I mean, sometimes they're looking for food and stuff, but most of the time, like they spend like huge amounts of time just standing there, you know, in contemplation. I mean, pretty much any animal, most human beings, you know, for most of history were like that as well. Um, like you, you'd think that modern technology has enabled us to have leisure, but in fact, the more technologically advanced society is, the less leisure they have. Hunter gatherers spent an average of 20 hours a week per adult on subsistence, 20 hours a week per adult and subsistence activities included a lot of what we would call leisure. You know, it wasn't like necessarily like hard labor. It was like walking out with the other women to gather some, you know, gather some food, talking and gossiping at the same time, you know, or if you were a man, like going out on a hunting trip, like people do that for recreation today. And it's not that like life was always easy uh, or, you know, never had hardship or discomfort, but like most of the time an experience of an abundance of time. And the same was true of primitive or, you know, primitive quote unquote, agricultural societies where you'd have like festivals that would last for days, weddings that would last for a week, 
um, in medieval Europe, like 170 saints days every every year where you couldn't work. You know, Yuletide, Christmas, that was 12 days. It wasn't like Christmas Day. Like so, so this is actually a a birthright, an abundance of time uh, that's part of fully being here on earth. And and so today, whether you're rich or poor, this pervasive scarcity tries to take over life. And like I'm so deeply conditioned to it. Yeah, time is money, you know, there's never enough. The time is the clock is ticking. Like even the clock, I mean, what does the clock suggest? You know, so so man, we're deep in it, you know. Yes, I was thinking how many people who are listening to this right now would say that they don't check their their phone on Christmas, that they don't scroll through social media and kind of feel that that sense of like, oh, I need to post just in order to stay relevant. I have to keep myself all the time in the mix. It's like our days are longer. I'm certainly not the, the, the going to say this as articulately as many who talk about this often, but we start our days like the moment that you wake up and look at your phone. People could never reach us before as easily as now. No one could reach me before at 6 a.m. You know, and now also if I wake up in the middle of the night, you know, checking the phone, just turning it off. And so having those boundaries, you know, is um, it's so tricky and it's kind of, it's so vital because if we, you know, just in my framework, my regenerative cycles framework, if we recognize that we go into a system that has existing dynamics to it, for example, a food forest or um, just a polyculture garden, there's already a lot of diversity inside the system. And that is designed to help create resilience and abundance and all the things that we need in order to grow food in healthful ways. But inevitably, at some point, the garden is going to face adversity in the same way that a person's body at some point is going to face some immune challenges. Um, and also in the same way that a nonprofit or a company, like at some point there's going to, there's, you know, the, there's, there's going to be something ugly that's challenging um, that's requiring literally every cell of strength that you have to, mm-hmm. to stay focused, grounded, clear, and ready to, be nourished enough to get through that period of adversity until we can come back to taste into abundance again. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the, this part of the cycle where we're tending to our bodies, to our projects, to our relationship, to our gut biome in the middle of a pi- pandemic, you know, tending to keep ourselves fortified is 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 vital. And so how do you do that when the when the culture doesn't really account for the time that it takes to be able to to do so? If, if we can as people who who share similar goals for cultural revitalization that's built in regenerative principles can look after one another and help tend each other when we go through moments mm-hmm. of nearing burnout. Um, then there is a likelihood that we'll be reweaving fabric of um, 
communal support for each other. And a lot of those fabrics have just been decimated through this past year, yeah. like the intense control of COVID and all of the kind of sterilization that's happened in our, in our networks. Mm-hmm. I think tending, I think of it in, in the most ancient sense, stewarding your community, creating community resilience. Um, I love to think of the work of um, the Audre Lorde project in New York City. They're, they're, they're helping to think about more long-term strategies for growing resilience and creating these long-term like community care ideas that we can't just think about today. We have to sort of plan for how we can support each other for tomorrow. I think the original idea of the sabbatical was sort of based in that too. Oh, this um, person has contributed so much to our, our discourse over the years. Let's give this person some time to, to just breathe and catch their breath. (laughs) Let's tend this person. It doesn't play itself out that way today. I was going to take a sabbatical last year uh, and then COVID happened. And instead of taking a sabbatical, I kind of sprung into action even more, you know, and drew on really deep reserves. Now you have to, you have to be find ways to replenish your reserves. Yeah. But I still feel like there's so much important thing. Like there's so many important things I need to do, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm seeing what's happening in the world and it's really distressing and there are people who are doing really great things uh, who I admire and who are addressing much of what I see. And there are also things that I see that, that I don't think anyone that I know of is seeing and they call me into action. And, but it's just like my capacities become so limited. Like I, I go on a podcast or something and, you know, I'll, I'll be on for that hour, that hour and a half, you know, I'll be in the state of clarity and flow. And then Afterwards, I'm so tired that I can't even put a sentence together. Yes. Yeah. Like the thoughts, like I, I feel like my adrenals scream when I try to pull two thoughts together into, into words. And, and that's not a metaphor. Like I actually feel it in my lower mm. back, you know, mm. and, and I don't want to see, here I go. I was about to say, I don't want to seem like I'm complaining, dot, dot, dot which means lots of other people are suffering way worse than this third world problem. And to just kind of like, you know, devalue my experience. Um, At some point for me, it's like not living by justification anymore. And if I turn that around, it's like, I don't want to force other people to justify their existence because I love them. You know, like, for example, my dear ex-wife, Patsy, you know, she likes to eat at restaurants and there's a really stingy part of me that's like, well, you know, I'm not going to share a resource with you if you're just going to spend it on restaurants. You know, you've got to be, you, you've got to shut down your joy and live uh, an ascetic lifestyle. Like, and that part of me just feels so bad because really I just want her to be in her full joy. And I trust that if she's in her full joy, that she will be incredibly generous and productive. Yes. But that doesn't justify it. It's not about justification. It's about generosity. It's about like the sun shining on the earth and giving that light and trusting life to do good things with it. But it's not like, oh, 
you haven't done good enough, so I'm not going to shine as brightly anymore. Yeah, that's scarcity mindset. Yeah. The next point on my framework of harvest, it comes exactly at this time. If you've just spent an hour and a half on a podcast and you're feeling your adrenals scream at you, well, maybe Patsy's feeling something similar, but she would just take herself to a restaurant to replenish. And you might drive yourself to get back at the computer and continue to write because you've got to meet a deadline. And the idea of harvest in this framework of mine is something that's shared in harvest festivals and in traditions around the world, that it's a time to recognize abundance, just to celebrate and share whatever it is that has just happened, even if it's not a sizable harvest. So I think I was sharing with you once before that It's taken me nine years um, since we planted an avocado tree to receive a harvest. And every year we're pruning and um, composting and feeding, cultivating, really nurturing this tree. And last year, the harvest that we got was two avocados. And so from my perspective, this is also something that gets lost in our culture alongside fallow is this idea around harvest. We only celebrate if it's something that is like, big and that other people can really cheer you on for. And you might take a picture and put it on Facebook and look at this achievement. I've grown, you know, baskets full of this amazing fruit. Look, my harvest was tiny, but I still have to find a way to see that as part of a cycle of achievement and part of a cycle of just being alive in this time right now. Because if I take that away from myself, and think, shit, I haven't really figured out how to do this um, avocado farming thing yet. I, the, this, I'm growing a food forest here on our uh, urban homestead. And if I, if I you know, kind of scalp myself for not really churning out as many avocados, then I'm just you know, replicating patterns of exploitation that have been in operation in our world for tens of thousands of years and have destroyed um, our ability to connect with that sense of love and interbeing. It sounds like you're talking about, about celebration actually here in harvest. Yeah. It could be as much as just a a celebration of a harvest could be as much as just like, I learned a lesson over the past season, or I learned a lesson from this podcast. I'm just going to take a moment and I'm going to drink this chai and really um, express my gratitude. I'm going to share something that I learned with someone in my family or some friend of mine, just a little thing. Harvesting small wins can be, you know, um, I I mean, just from the activist framework, there's incredible research that um, Paul Gorski's research team has studied when exploring racial justice um, activism today. And his team is looking at how important it is to create more rituals around harvesting in order to acknowledge achievements, in order to celebrate the small wins of uh, both individuals and groups. It's like, we just don't do that. And in a lot of frontline organizations, who has time to do that? Because you just have to get back out there. The racist structures that are all around us, they have not yet crumbled. There is more work to do. But his research is basically showing us that um, adding joy back into the process of 
of being, of doing, um, might help us withstand some of the immense pressures um, that are leading to such a, a massive experience of burnout in today's culture. It's like, get off that hamster wheel and go celebrate. You, you kind of have to, in order to have the strength to do what you've just done again. And so get off the hamster wheel, take a pause, go have a glass of wine or go have a nap or go cut up those avocados and share them. <laughs> Otherwise it's just debilitating. It's what landed me in, in like the clenched teeth of burnout. Mm-hmm. Just don't have any reason to think that climbing out of COVID would be any different. It's like, in some ways you want to make up for lost time and get back into the community and do what needs to get done. It's just kind of ever exhausting. There will always be more urgencies and there will, there will always be an, an ever exhausting task list of things that you have to do. And yeah. so you know, without kind of allowing yourself to breathe and fallow, reflect and, and grieve, you won't have the energy to keep on showing up for, for all of us in community with your speaking and with your writing. Um, and, and I won't either. I pray that, that your message actually sinks into the cells of people listening as well as me. Um, I've been getting it from many directions, you know, and also getting the opposite message from some directions too. But it's at some point, it seems that um, like right now, my body's not letting me actually do too much. And um, the thing is, I really enjoy, like a lot of my work, I love it, you know? It's not like, you know, I'm stepping back from something, something that's just tedious or burdensome, like a lot of work out there in industrial society is tedious and degrading, but mine is great. I love doing it. And like, I'm working on this essay now that's just so fun. I'm like pulling like such disparate threads together and it's just so fun. And I thought about like, what if I only do what's fun? Where does that fit into your, uh, into your scheme? <laughs> it doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't. Um, but. I think um, the uh, you know the ancient sabbatical yeah. that is happening. We're trying to revitalize this fall, starting in September. It's like if you take off a year of farming and you allow the land to rest, you might allow yourself the chance to map out your business plan and um, you know resuscitate parts of your business that have not had as much attention because you've been focusing on your farming. If you imagine leaving your land fallow for a year, you might be able to have a little bit more fun. Now, not to overemphasize the fun piece of it. Like I think it also, it, it merits speaking for a moment about what the ancient sabbatical was designed to do, right? If we see it as an ancient blueprint for the regeneration of overworked people and overwrought communal structures and land that has just been extracted ceaselessly from for too long, 
then once out of every seven years, if we follow that, then we get the chance to see what we're unable to see when we're too busy in today's landscape. We're able to just like kind of zoom out and figure out what needs to happen in order to dismantle the structures that divide the private from the public. Like the ancient sabbatical was calling for a dismantling of walls that that not just that separate children from families and countries from each other, but dismantle walls that that separate you know neighbors that have ownership over land and neighbors that don't, neighbors that are farming that land that don't have. Um, the idea is to dismantle prison walls and to release child slavery, like to end slavery. How do you even begin to get the kind of clarity that we need? to get rid of slavery when there are 40 million people that are enslaved today. Child slavery, like, uh, you know, uh, how, how do we get that kind of mindset where we're able to merge movements when, you know, there's such competition over scarcity of resources and you're just trying to survive and keep your own little tiny thing alive. It's like, we really need to figure out ways, strategies of, addressing a kind of systematized, um, you know, massive scale shift in the ways in which we're operating, not only on a personal level, but on um, a, a, a cultural level. So if there were tools that could be practiced, for example, like an entire year that we've just had for COVID. In some ways, it's like a total dry run for a sabbatical. We've just, no one's ever really known what the true sabbatical year was like um, in, in, according to like the ancient um, yeah. Hebrew Bible. But this has been a good test run. And, and like, you can't really imagine that everyone could take a full year off of work. But imagine if your focus for an entire year um, was to, make systemic change to the ways in which your, your corporation is operating and really reflect on it. Well, you know, I was thinking uh, COVID has been sabbatical for some people and not others, but the basic principle is that certainly one seventh of the population could be on sabbatical at any given time. I mean, we already kind of have that. It's called unemployment. You know, if you look at the, the actual unemployment figures, you know, not the official government ones, but it's like, you know, 20% or so, so, or, or more. So already, actually, we have kind of a sabbatical system. It's just that it comes with, you know, economic deprivation and so forth. But my point is that we have enough social resource, we have enough abundance to actually offer that to everybody. This world is so abundant, actually. The, the, all the scarcity that people experience around the world, and I'm talking including hunger, um, every kind of deprivation, it's all a matter of distribution. None of it is a matter of fundamental scarcity. The world wastes many times more food than it would take to feed all of the hungry people on earth. And that doesn't even include like the kind of thing, I mean, imagine if every lawn in America, even if a quarter of it were, were, were a food forest or a, a urban homestead like you have, like, <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> we waste people like we waste food. 
And we send 1.3 billion tons of fruit annually to the landfill just because it has like a freckle on it or some imperfection, a little bruise on it. And so it's just, and and also activists are getting burned out. We talked about this, like 40 to 60% of all activists, they just, they get involved for a short time and then they dry up and leave and we're losing, like we're, we're just hemorrhaging our most vital resource by not treating every person as some, you know, vital or as some like integral part of the whole. Yeah. I'm just, right now I'm just thinking, do I treat myself as a valuable integral part of the whole by pushing myself like that? But then I, then my mind went next to sometimes when I contemplate taking a sabbatical or even like stopping this work and doing something else, which I think is not something I want, but sometimes my frustrated desire for a sabbatical is translated into that. Like, let me just get out of here, you know, then I'll, I'll like read some, someone's comment, you know, or someone will write me um, and they'll be like, you know, basically like your words saved my life. You know, I came across your book at a certain moment, you know, please keep speaking, you know, please keep doing what you're doing. And I'm like, shit, if I take a sabbatical, then especially now, it's always especially now because there's always a crisis. If I take a sabbatical, then, you know, I'm going to disappoint a lot of people and not just because they're going to be disappointed in me and, you know, and think I'm not good enough, but it's like they, what I'm, there's a need that I'm meeting with, with my work. And like, see, then I go into this place of, well, they're just saying that uh, my work isn't actually doing any good in the world. Like I get sometimes into this negative self-talk. It's been all futile anyway, so I might as well stop doing it. And like, is so is my desire for sabbatical, is it really coming from this principle of following that you're talking about? Or is it, and how much of it's coming from that? How much of it is coming from my work has been, is not helpful. How much of it is coming from uh, cowardice, like stepping back from the fray? Like all these things are feeding into it and and it kind of muddies, muddies the waters. It's like, I have clarity on everything but myself, you know? It muddies the waters and, and, and so I keep delaying and postponing my sabbatical. And what, I don't know, what do you have to say to that? So much. Um, my first thought is that I think one of our um, shared problems is thinking too much about what is needed from other folks, what you have to give to others. And if other people are going to write that you've helped them immensely, that you're going to keep going, it, it seems like it, it needs a recalibration that, that that entirely comes from within you, um, not from outside of you, but that in order for that to happen, it might require slowing down long enough to figure out which spiritual practices you have in place, which rituals you're working with, um, and how often you are replenishing yourself in front of your um, altar, how often you're sitting in stillness under a tree, um, how deeply you allow yourself to tap into joy when you have that experience. Um, And I would love for you to think about the metaphor of the garden again. So much of my inspiration is coming from there. 
and, and my work's all about this kind of experiential burnout recovery stuff. And, and in this moment, I'm thinking of in my garden, I have a lot of different types of things that are growing. And one of my plants, which is growing next to the asparagus and the, um, and the bok choy is cauliflower. And it's completely full of aphids. Like it is infested, but every other plant in the garden is thriving except for this one plant. And I could go out there and tell you like, yes, it's taking one for the team. Like this plant is going to die. There's just what, what's happening is it is keeping the rest of the plants alive. So other folks can continue to learn from you and be, and benefit from the wisdom they're glean, that you're gleaning in the world at this time. But if you are decimated in the process, then what have we gained? If you kind of sacrifice yourself in this martyr, like holy, holier than martyrdom way, we haven't gotten anywhere. Because a lot of folks are also maybe looking to you and learning from you about how to continue to be in, this, in these movements for the long haul. Like we don't want to no. just sustain ourselves and, and plod along when we're operating at 60%. We want to figure out ways to slow down and know how to charge our energy so that we can give back from that place of being totally fueled. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. And I would say I'm operating maybe at 30% right now. But here's another metaphor that came to me to kind of explain my difficulty here. You know, it's not that I really have a strong martyr complex or anything like that. It's, it's, it's like, okay, suppose you're really, really tired, okay? And your child says, mom, I want a glass of water. And maybe if you were like feeling great and energetic, you would go get her a glass of water, but get it yourself, I'm tired, okay? No problem. Well, what if you're exhausted, but your child like, falls down and gets a gash in her head and she's bleeding all over the floor. Then no matter how tired you are, you're going to get up and you're going to tend to your child. This is my feeling like, like not that I'm here to save the world, but something of the world is in a state of immediate crisis. And, and I've got to do something about it. It's like, I've got to do something about it. I've got to do something about it. I've got to do something about it. And like, you can psychoanalyze me and say, oh, it's your rescuer complex or whatever. But if, if your child, you know, gashed her head and I said, oh, that's just your rescuer complex. You'd be like, bullshit. Right. That's not my rescuer complex. And, and when people like throw that psychobabble at me, I'm just like, I just like feel really um, impatient. I would just say, if you don't rest now, then you won't be able to have any impact over what is happening around you because you won't have anything left. You have already depleted your reserves. And so the next time, imagine now you've helped your daughter, you've you've bandaged up the gash and now she's okay. She's more resilient than you are and moving through this next time it's it's even more significant and there's even more of a need for you to maybe put your body on the line and get out there to help her or help somebody else in your community 
but you're absolutely incapable of mustering the strength to do it because you didn't take the time to replenish now. And so you'll be like, I remember I had this conversation. It was like 20 years ago, you know, and now I just, I'm just in my regret yeah. stage, beating myself up. Had I made a couple of, of easier choices down the road, I might not be where I am right now. Yeah. I think that having like the ability to slow down, it, it doesn't mean that you're giving everything up. It means t- like taking a sabbatical, it means having the chance to regenerate. So you are taking care of yourself also. Yeah. You are an yeah. integral part of the world. You cannot just focus on what is needed from the world without focusing on what is needed from you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I've just been kind of giving voice to some of the voices in my head, but I'm with you, you know, like I'm just kind of like bringing to the surface all of these subconscious obstacles that I've put in my way to actually take a sabbatical. But, you know, I'm pretty much there. And um, I just haven't quite pulled the trigger yet. You know what I mean? I've kind of like gotten close to the edge and then stepped back from it. Oh, I'll go on a little pilgrimage to Brazil, but I won't. And then I, I get renewed by these little flirtations with sabbatical. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm fine now. But I haven't really done it. And um, so I, I thank you for giving me uh, a nudge here. It, it doesn't have to be a whole year. It could be a, yeah. that a renewed flirtation is something that you do every seven months that you go and you take a retreat. And it's not necessarily a writer's retreat so you can bang out your next right. piece, but it's just, it's like every seven months you find your own cycle. Maybe it's every seven weeks where you just, okay, uh, this weekend I'm going to, I'm going to do a little Vipassana. I'm not going to speak with anybody. I'm just going to, you know, go back into that place of stillness that feeds me so much or whatever it is. I thank you for sharing the voices. And I also just, I really, I really um, honor your incredible offerings um, to the community time and time and time again in the form of writing. It's, it's exceptional. And ultimately, I want to figure out how, like, how to imagine into growing collective power. So there are lots of people like you who are able to do what you're doing and they can learn from you because you're setting a great example. You're mentoring other people to figure out, okay, I got this. Now I'm going to take a little pause and, and, and that's okay. Like in order to create something that's like truly intersectional and, and united and transcendent, like really, really powerfully transformative as we go back into the world post COVID there are certain things that we have to be able to commit to. And maybe one of them is to not depleting finite energy resources, but to taking um, our own health into the, the heart center of what it is that we do in the world so that we can continue to do it for the long haul. We're working, we're walking through minefields you got to be able to, to not just imagine that this is all going to be over because we're walking out of COVID now. You just have to dream into how you're going to have the strength to do this for several decades, not for several more weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems like a kind of a good concluding statement. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so grateful. Thank you for giving me this opportunity to connect with you. 
Yeah, yeah, it was good. I'm glad I followed up on that impulse. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.